Hello, welcome to The Warpod, a podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a research initiative at the London-based peace and security think tank, Oxford Research Group. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. Today, I'll be joined by Camilla Molyneux, Senior Researcher and Policy Advisor at the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Drones, and Mark Goodwin-Hudson, former British Army officer and head of the NATO Civilian Casualty Investigation and Mitigation Team in Afghanistan in 2016. We're going to be discussing the Overseas Operations Bill. Enjoy the show. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining. So let's start with the easy question. Camilla, what is the Overseas Operations Bill? Hi, Abby. Thank you for having me on your podcast. The bill will introduce provisions that limit the ability to bring claims for activities overseas. And it consists of three components. The first one is concerning criminal claims against service personnel or veterans. Now, this introduces a triple lock and a presumption against prosecution that will prevent all but exceptional cases from being prosecuted after five years. Now, some sexual offences are excluded from the presumption against prosecution, but controversially, torture, crimes against humanity, genocide and war crimes are not. And we've heard some critics, including Liberty and Human Rights Watch, that are worried that this part of the bill will undermine international law and also that it will undermine the UK's reputation and may encourage copycat legislation. The second part of the bill concerns civil claims, and this introduces a six-year absolute time limit on bringing civil claims and Human Rights Act claims against the MOD. Significantly, these claims are only brought against the MOD as an institution, not against service personnel. Now, the people who bring these claims are either service personnel and veterans themselves for injuries or for wrongful death, or by civilians for institutional flaws in MOD policy or practice that that has caused them harm. Critics say that this part of the bill will undermine soldiers' protections as well as the protections of civilians. Experts speaking in front of the Public Bill Committee, including the Royal British Legion, said that this part of the bill does in no way benefit soldiers and that it only benefits the MOD. In fact, the existing time limit is actually stricter than the one introduced in this legislation. However, it does provide judges with the discretion to extend time limits when they deem that there is a good reason for the claimant bringing the claim uh, after the time limit. The third part of the uh, bill is a requirement for the Secretary of State to consider derogating from the European Convention on Human Rights. This is a option or a power that the government already has, and so it's not quite clear why they need to legislate this. However, it is important to point out that not all articles under the European Convention on Human Rights can be derogated from, and this includes the um, absolute prohibition against torture. 
Our main message is that whilst the government says that it seeks to solve the problem of repeated and lengthy claims and investigations, this bill does actually not do that. And this is what the majority of witnesses in front of the Public Bill Committee, including Judge Blackett and General Sir Parker, said as well. The problem is, in fact, that there is a lack of independent and comprehensive investigations into allegations at the time of knowledge. Now, this bill, by attempting to legislate away prosecutions, does only treat a symptom, not the root problem, which is flawed investigations. Lovely. You mentioned these criminal claims. Mark, can you just go into a bit of where the the interest in introducing this bill and where the bill itself came from? Um, Abby, thank you very much. Um, and thank you for giving me the chance to speak on this podcast. The background to the bill is um, that it's one strand of the government's approach to addressing the problem of lawfare and to ending the cycle of reinvestigation of historic events. And I think that Johnny Mercer, who's the veteran forces minister, who is the person who um, has instigated this bill, should be commended for actually wanting to do something about that. And um, certainly in the public domain, everybody's very aware of Phil Shiner uh, and his misconduct as a legal professional. And the distress and the level of investigations and repeated investigations that our soldiers have been put under. However, our concern, though, is that this bill is not the right way to address that problem. Uh, it doesn't actually go to the root of the problem. Um, it only goes to um, the, um, the symptoms of the problem. And I think during the course of this podcast, we can talk in more detail about what, what the real problem is and what the bill should be addressing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, both of you, for laying that out. I think it sets the scene quite well. Camilla, can you just get us up to date? Where are we up to with the bill now? So the bill has been considered and debated in the House of Commons, and it is currently before the Public Bill Committee. They've been hearing from expert witnesses and have been receiving stakeholders submitted evidence and they are now considering amendments. The Public Bill Committee stage will conclude on the 22nd of November, if not before, and then the bill will be heading to the Lords where they will go through the same process, first and second reading, bill committee and third reading, where peers will have the opportunity to scrutinise the bill, suggest their own amendments, and then it will go back to the Commons, who will consider the Lord's amendments, and then it will ping-pong back and forward until the two houses are happy with the wording. And then it is expected to pass. Wow, I mean, I'm shocked at all the the journey that the bill's making. It sounds like... (laughs) Uh, a difficult quest that it's about to go through. You sound very confident that it's going to pass, which is surprising given, as as Mark said, and as you've written about, you, there are so many concerns with it. Can you briefly, just before we go into the concerns, lay out what the bill actually looks like? 
the so you've laid out the different sections of the bill and mark in his introduction to the bill before you highlighted that there were a number of of concerns different parts of it i wonder if now we can we can unpick what those concerns look like by by unpicking those three sections so first maybe we could look at the problems with the criminal claim section camilla can you dive into that a bit absolutely abby i think on the whole this bill there is a big concern and a problem with the fact that it is based on a false premise and that is that vexatious prosecution and lawfare is something that is frequent and something that this bill can solve. But since 2000, we've seen that there have only been 27 prosecutions and eight convictions. And so this bill will not solve the problem that we see at the heart of um, this issue which is protracted reinvestigations and so this has been warned by many experts you had including general sir nick parker said that the bill is focusing on the completely wrong thing and to address the problem of repeated investigations into the conduct of armed forces overseas the bill must have at its heart the need to ensure prompt independent competent criminal investigations into future allegations and we've seen that repeated cases involving Iraq and Afghanistan have happened because insufficient independent criminal inquiries were made into credible allocations of abuse um, at the relevant time and so that is really something that we're lacking at the moment. If I could just add to that from a, a military perspective and also uh, based on my own experiences of um, running investigations in Afghanistan. It is by far the best and the most professional way for the army to confront and deal with in a timely manner these allegations, not only in order to bring justice, but also to be in a position whilst on operations to change the way, or if, should we need to, to conduct our operations so that we um, don't either kill or damage more civilians and don't set ourselves up for more allegations. And I think that Johnny Mercer, who um, is the person who, who initiated this bill, said it very well and actually said the same himself when um, on the Guardian's Today podcast in May 2019, Johnny Mercer said, one of the biggest problems was the military's inability to investigate itself and the standard of those investigations. If those investigations were done properly, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. Uh, and it's interesting because um, that could just as easily come straight out of the mouth of General Sir Nick Parker. So I think to sort of underline the point, this is not the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is to conduct timely investigations, to do them well, and that is the way to deal with repeated allegations. Absolutely, Mark. And I think that comes on to my next point, which is that rather than actually 
addressing fear that soldiers do have that they might be prosecuted, this bill actually makes it more likely that they might be prosecuted overseas, for example, at the International Criminal Court. And that is because if the UK failed to investigate or prosecute soldiers for crimes, international crimes, the ICC has the duty to step in and to look at the case. And that is something that might happen. And we know that the ICC are already looking into UK uh, behaviour in Iraq. And I think it's also important to note that the UK has a number of obligations under international law, including to investigate and prosecute the most serious international crimes. And this includes torture, war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. And even if this bill does come into being, we still have to investigate those kinds of crimes. And this bill is trying to undermine those obligations. And that will not look good for the UK's reputation. It will undermine the international rules-based order. And it will risk that serious crimes will not be prosecuted. And this undermines fundamental legal principles of fairness and equality and is something that a lot of organizations, including Liberty, for example, are very concerned about, but also something that, for example, Lord Guthrie, Judge Blackett and General Sir Parker have voiced um, significant concern about. Thank you. I think I think that final point is a particularly powerful one, and it touches on some of the work that Megan and Liam from the Oxford Research Group have been doing on the protection of civilian strategy and how these these laws and the implications of them don't square with public statements around how the UK wants to be a supporter of the rules based order. And I think unless unless we're mindful of of what they what the long term implications could be for the communities in which the UK is engaged, then we may well end up undermining any efforts to make global Britain be about being a defender of the rules based order. I think that also maybe leads nicely onto the second section which you laid out in the outline around the civil claims. Can you briefly outline what the problems may be of that section of the bill? I think just following on from what Camilla said about um, this bill uh, undermining the UK's reputation and the international rules based order, I think just um, speaking from a soldier's perspective, that we have a reputation in the British Army for decency and for fairness. And the problem with this bill is that it undermines um, the UK's military reputation for being champions of the rule of law, for being just, for treating people equally. And the trust and the authority and the credibility that comes with that can be very easily lost, very casually lost, but it's very hard to regain. And I think that uh, this bill has the potential to undermine and to derail that trust. And if you think in particular 
where we are partnering with other nations and we are mentoring other nations. They need to see us as the example of what good looks like. But if they see us watering down the rule of law, it will only encourage them to do the same thing. Where in some of the organizations, some of the countries that we work with, there's huge potential for um, perpetuating corruption or doing worse. So I think in that sense that this bill does not do anything to enhance UK's military reputation overseas. In fact, it does the opposite. I think that's a, a great point, Mark. And I also think it speaks to who thinks the UK is a beacon of the international rules-based order. I think we tend to have these conversations in Whitehall and in London and not among Iraqis or Afghans who may well have a different perception of whether or not the UK is a champion of rules-based order, which makes the, these, these bills and the implications of them so important. Camilla, I don't know if you want to jump in on, on the civil claims section of the, of the bill. So civil claims, uh, to begin with, I just want to emphasize that they are made against the MOD as an institution only, not against individuals or individual service personnel. These claims are in general made by MOD employees, so soldiers, veterans, etc., or overseas civilians, like civilian Afghans, for example. And the, this provision says that after six years, a claim cannot be made against the MOD. And it has been emphasized by the majority of the witnesses in front of the Public Bill Committee, including the Royal British Legion and lawyers who represent soldiers, that this part of the Overseas Operations Bill only benefits the MOD. And this year long stock that has been put in will actually um, result in soldiers having less rights than they currently do. And if you look at the majority of civil claims that are brought against the MOD, these are actually brought by soldiers and they, they concern the MOD's failure in duty of care towards soldiers. And so it is likely that this provision can cause a significant drop in compensation to soldiers. It is also interesting when you look at the MOD's own numbers for civil claims made by civilians overseas that 94% I think it is of claims made by civilians are made after um, three years and 60 something percent after six years and I think this speaks to the fact that it is incredibly difficult for civilians overseas to bring claims. And this has been emphasized by Lord Guthrie, who has said that five years or six years is a blink of an eye in the conflict context. And so it really does deprive the majority of civilians overseas from any form of justice. And I think finally, I think it is very important to remember that the these civil and human rights act claims and the subsequent investigations that have that we've seen in the last few decades these have revealed and highlighted institutional and structural failures in the mod that has allowed repeated violations both following operations in northern ireland iraq and afghanistan including torture 
And it is only through civil claims against the MOD that both soldiers and civilians can bring claims and structural shortcomings can be addressed. And it is a unique oversight mechanism that gives the parliament and public insight into what the armed forces are doing. And I think good examples are snatch rovers and the fact that in Afghanistan, soldiers were not provided with the right equipment and were injured and killed. And equally, the Chilcot inquiry, finding that torture had been conducted by British forces. These sorts of institutional problems would not have been um, become public if it hadn't been for civilian claims and inquiries. Thanks, Camilla. That was a great point and really, really well made. And I also want to, because I think it links to the last point, I want to jump onto an earlier point you made around the fact that this section of the bill seems to only protect the Ministry of Defence. And it sort of speaks to this false dichotomy that I've also seen in my own work on UK Special Forces and the need to introduce transparency and accountability over them that there seems to be this this debate that that polarizes people between either being for transparency and accountability or for soldiers and just looking at the the commons debate on this bill it seems to be that a lot of the comments made by johnny mercer were indicating that there has been this polarization again that you can either you can either be for the bill or you're against soldiers. Mark, I'd like to I'd like to bring you in here. You're obviously a, a former soldier and you have highlighted really necessary problems with the bill that we need to look at. What do you think of this this polarization of the debate? Do you think it's a false dichotomy or is there something to it? Um, thank you. I mean, I think I've also worked in the MOD, so I have quite a good understanding of what happens and what's talked about um, when the doors are closed. I think that just, just making two points about the conduct of the MOD before going specifically onto that question, I think that, that, that Camilla is absolutely right. The MOD's focus is, is twofold. Firstly, it's to do with finances. And secondly, it's to do with covering up. And those are two principles which, um, for my mind, in terms of the MOD, dominate this bill. And uh, you could see it in another area in something I was involved in 10 years ago when um, Help for Heroes stepped in because the MOD were going to do absolutely nothing um, to help wounded veterans. And um, it was only because Help for Heroes exposed them that they, that they were actually forced to do something. But Help for Heroes provided the money and the initiative to do something for veterans. So what's been rather manipulative about this bill, which you rightly pick up on, is that you are accused of um, not standing up for soldiers, being unpatriotic and not acknowledging their sacrifices if you don't support this bill and what i want to say is that is a lie because you can be all that you need to be for veterans and vote categorically against this bill 
and I would suggest you do because I don't believe that it's in our, our, the personal interests of our soldiers to be treated this way. I also don't think that it's in the strategic interests of this country because I think that we need to be held accountable, we need to be transparent, and we need to apply the rule of law. The rule of law is not our enemy. The rule of law is there to help us. And where we find ourselves contravening the rule of law, we need to change our military conduct on operations. Because what we're seeing too often, and we've seen particularly in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, are these very hollow, short-lived, kinetic-based victories in inverted commas that in the medium to long term have often led to strategic failure. And you can see that in Afghanistan and you can see that in Iraq. So, Abby, yes, I would agree with you um, that much of the debate of the bill seems to be premised on a fake dichotomy and this idea that it is our duty to do whatever is necessary to protect or benefit our soldiers. And I don't think that where a soldier has transgressed the rule of law, it is in his interests or our interests to try and make it difficult or harder for that individual to be prosecuted. It's not in the, in, in the interests of the army in terms of military discipline. It's not in the interests, in the personal interests of the individual or the culture of the army, because I think the individual needs to know where the boundaries are and to know that the boundaries will be adhered to. But I think also thirdly, in the bigger picture, it's not in the interests of us at the strategic level to attempt to water down or even to be seen to be watering down the processes by which someone might be prosecuted for transgressing the rule of law. Uh, if I might just jump in, yeah, go on. I think yeah, go on. I think that is that is crucial and and it is something that is so important to think about for the UK. And I think one thing we mustn't forget is that UK prosperity and security is based on the rules-based international uh, order. And this is extremely important. And we've had people like Nicholas Mercer, who was the senior legal advisor in Iraq, saying that this bill can create a slippage when it comes to the standard of international law. And you might get copycat legislation by other countries that will provide immunity to their soldiers. And it could, this could also then risk soldiers when they are deployed. I think that upholding the, the international order and making sure that that is the basis upon which our armed forces operate is extremely important. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, that's well made. I think I would add another point um, as we look at the development of technology and the growth of remote warfare. There's an interesting um, article that's come out recently saying that since uh, we took troops uh, off the ground in 2014 in Afghanistan uh, and focused essentially really on conducting the war through remote means, through continuous drone strikes, 
And having been in Afghanistan, every night was drone strike. And you saw exactly the same when we were in Iraq and we were in, a Mos in Mosul in 2017. It was strike after strike after strike. With this escalation of remote digital and removed type warfare, we've also seen correspondingly an escalation in civilian casualties. And we, we you know, to have this double tap of depersonalized warfare, boots off the ground, focusing more on conducting warfare through screens at the same time as then making it harder to prosecute people for transgressing the rule of law. We're, we're getting further and further away from um, legitimacy, from uh, a just war, from, um, I think, having the ability to create uh, any lasting or long-term peace in the nations that we're involved in, not least because the future of a nation is its civilians. And if you are killing civilians by their thousands, which was the case in Mosul, what future does that give to that city or that country? But also you are creating um, more enemies uh, and than you're able actually to kill. Okay, great. Thanks for that, Mark. And both of you have mentioned both devastating and, and necessary points that we need the bill to take into account. I guess as just a, a closing question for you both, it would be interesting if you could reflect on what you would like to see happen with the bill and more broadly in this space. I think, Abby, in very simple terms and keeping as brief as possible, um, General Sir Nicholas Parker nailed it when he said that the core of this bill needs to establish the ability to conduct proper, thorough, independent and timely investigations. And I had a, a brief time in Iraq when that was my responsibility. And that would deal and that would give us the ability to get ground truth uh, as quickly and effectively as we can in order to deal with allegations also in order to to change with the way we conduct, conduct our operations where necessary but thirdly and critically it gives us the chance to acknowledge where we've done wrong and acknowledge where we've done wrong to the victim and make amends and i would say that in general um the us are much better at this than we are and as a result of some of the investigations that we were leading um in Afghanistan, US special forces actually went out on the ground with money which they gave to families where they had wrongfully killed members of this family in order to make amends there and then. And to me, that would go much closer to the heart of A, dealing with the protection of our soldiers that they need against false allegations, and B, dealing with the strategic implications of when we actually get it wrong. I think to um, add on to what Marcus said, from uh, our point of view, ideally, we would see the bill scrapped and potentially redrafted. However, as that is unlikely to happen, there are a lot of amendments going around that would address some of the most significant concerns with the bill, including that um, 
torture and the, the most serious crimes under international law are not excluded from the bill, we would welcome a new consultation that actually addresses the root problem and is much broader than what we've seen. And we also believe that this bill should not have been drafted in a vacuum, but should be considered alongside upcoming legislation and policy initiatives, including the integrated review and the upcoming armed forces bill next year. So I think along with Judge Blackett and General Sir Parker, we would like to see the um, bill paused. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much, both of you, both for being on the podcast and for all the work that you've been doing on this bill and trying to get policymakers and the, the wider public aware of the problems that are contained in the bill. So thank you again. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. ORG is closing at the end of the year but the Remote Warfare programme, including this podcast, will move to Safer World under the new name of the Security Policy Change Programme. In the new year, the podcast will be taken over by Safer World. For now, you can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge on the ORG site by following the link at the bottom of the page. We look forward to you joining us again soon. Bye.